0: Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. Today, we're talking to Carolina de Robertis about her book Cantoras, which is out now from Knopf.
1: And don't forget that you can find a complete transcript as well as a list of all the books we mentioned in today's episode linked in our show notes, and be sure to subscribe so that way you don't miss a single episode and review us on iTunes. Well, this book was recommended to us by Lupita on
0: our most anticipated episode, and I am so glad that we picked this up
1: so soon. (laughs) It is just as immersive and beautifully written as she said it would be.
0: (laughs) Yes, it was, like, in my mind, I was so excited for it, but nervous, but I shouldn't have been, because it definitely delivered, and it's such a beautiful book.
1: I don't know how writers are able to write such melodic books. I just don't know. It's just, I'm in, I mean, it's all inspiring to me. I will
0: definitely be going back and picking up a lot of her backlist.
1: Well, so on that note, um, Carolina is a writer from Uruguay, which is where this book is set. And she, as Kendra just mentioned, has written three other books the gods of tango perla and the invisible mountain and her books have been translated into 17 different languages and they have appeared on the best books of the year recommended by oprah magazine booklist nbc and she has been the recipient of a stonewall book award as well and in addition to other fellowships and awards so she is a very prolific highly praised writer She mentions this in the interview, but she's also a translator, which is cool. And right now she she teaches fiction and literary translation at San Francisco State University and lives in Oakland with her wife and her two kids. And yeah, so Cantores is her fourth novel, and we were so excited to talk to her about it. So without further ado, here's our interview with Carolina de
0: Robertis. Well, welcome, Carolina, to the
1: podcast. We're so excited to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted. This book first got on our radar from the lovely Lupita Reads. And as we were talking a minute ago, she basically demanded that we read it. (laughs) And we're so glad she did because this is just a beautiful, lovely, well-written, immersive story. So we were delighted to read it and excited
2: to talk to you about it. Oh, thank you so much! I'm just incredibly honored and pleased more than I can say by, um, by some of the early readers' reactions. I'm so glad, and thank you for taking the time. <laughs> yeah, and I, w- I was just saying before we started
0: recording that I've been in a book coma since I finished it this past weekend, and it's like I've been like wandering through different other books, and I'm like, no, they just don't work. I just, I just <laughs> oh. can't get over this. <laughs> Obviously, we loved it, but for our listeners who haven't uh, read cantoras yet. Uh, would you describe it for them?
2: Sure. Yes, absolutely. So Cantoras is a novel that takes place in Uruguay, um, which is my native country, little country in South America. And it follows five queer women beginning in 1976. So in the era of the very brutal military dictatorship, um, as they discover um, each other, come out to each other, and then over the years turn to each other and their friendship for love and survival. Um, So it follows them through the era of the dictatorship and also into time of democracy and looking at all of the, not only political, but also personal um, upheavals and experiences that they traverse together.
1: And the title is so integral to the story and you kind of get into this a little bit at the very, very beginning of the novel, but could you talk a little bit about the title and where that came from and the role it plays in the story?
2: What's interesting about that is that I had many different working titles along the way as I was writing the book, and the title Cantoras actually didn't come until the end, Um, and yet it is in fact so incredibly central to the story itself. So the word Cantoras is a kind of old-fashioned word for singers in Spanish, and it also means female singers, cantoras, right? So implied in the word is also that these are all female people, um, which of course is an untranslatable part because you translate the word Um, To singers, it's accurate, but it doesn't capture that piece of this is about women. Um, And this is a word that um, was used by at least a few different crews of queer women who really, truly did live under the radar during the dictatorship in Uruguay and who used that word as code for lesbians. So they'd sort of look at each other and go, you know, what do you think? Is she a cantora? Does she sing? You know, wink, wink. Um, And and so this is a word that I learned from these real women I met in Uruguay um, beginning in 2001. Uh, as I was traveling there to deepen my own relationship to my country of origin and and also just kind of as a young queer woman from the diaspora looking for signs of queer life in in my country of origin. And I met these women who were a generation older than me and um, had lived through these times of incredible repression and found these dazzling ways to survive. And I was just blown away. And i basically been listening to their stories and gathering their stories for 18 years. And um I'm so inspired even by things like that, like that little example of, of using the word cantoras to, um, to have code for what we are and for finding each other, um, even in dangerous circumstances.
1: And it, it doesn't surprise me that you actually talked to women and were in Uruguay when you were writing this, because it is so... I mean, I feel like I was there. It's so immersive, just the experience of reading this book. But apart from like the on the ground research you did, like, was there? What was what was your research process like? I guess that's what I'm asking. Like, where did you decide to start, and what kind of did you look at as you were researching for this book?
2: That's a great question. And what's interesting is that with regard to this particular book, um, which is my fourth novel, by the time I knew I was definitely going to write this novel, I had. Strangely enough, done most of the research um, in terms of the knowledge about the dictatorship era, what it was like, political imprisonment, you know, how things happened, how democracy returned. I had researched all of that very deeply for my prior novels, which also kind of delve into the, the subject matter from different angles. And so I had a lot of the material. I have shelves of books, you know, in the original Spanish, dog-eared secondhand copies. You know, I, I have them and, I, and I've and i been looking at them. So I kind of already had all of that to build on, um, which is really exciting and refreshing as opposed to setting out on a topic and then realizing you're going to have to take this deep research dive, right? Which is also lovely, but... Much more laborious, and then in terms of researching the stories and the, and the queer stories themselves, which I didn't find at all in history books, that has not that has just not been part of the official history within Uruguay at all. Which was part of what was so mind blowing for me about meeting these women, and then alongside having relationships and friendships with them whenever I could go back to Uruguay, spending time, particularly with a couple of them, and hearing them talk about their friends and and their memories and their past. Um, It was really incredible to put that together with the immense silence around queer women and queer people's histories within that era of Uruguay, and realize, you know, there are just so many stories that are historically in the margins and that just get undertold and, you know, my hope as a novelist is to um, fill those silences with voice as best I can. And then once I knew that I was going to write this novel and it was going to be a novel, I went back to some of these women and I told them and I asked them if I could A, possibly have their permission to draw on their stories, which they gave me the most open armed blessing, which was so moving, um, and then also, B, whether I could interview them. And so that was a part of my research process as well, was you know gap, get, getting together with um, various different women, taking them out to lunch, come over to my house, I make great milanesas, I've got a bottle of whiskey, and I'll tell you whatever you want to know, um, which is a really great part of the research process, I have to
1: say. <laughs>
0: Well, it sounds like you definitely also like immersed yourself in these women's stories. Reading this novel made me think, were there any queer women writers that you read from the time? I know there probably isn't a lot of preservation around those things. And was there anything that you learned that uh, you weren't able to include in the novel?
2: Oh, that's a wonderful question. I mean, absolutely. There's always things that end up on the editing floor, right? Um, That you can't fit into the shape of the narrative of the book, which is sort of painful not to be able to... fit everything inside and and, oh but there's this story what about that angle Um, and ultimately you know you start with a wide canvas and as you start writing the stories the characters start to crystallize and become themselves and you know although I drew on so much raw material from real women's lives and I really wanted to use these real women's lives in order to have real veracity like I want to do justice to actual histories um, to the extent that I can with the writing you know at the same time there's invention and the women in the book are, are their own fictional characters. They start as composites and then they become their own living, breathing beings, at least in my own head and hopefully in the heads of others. So that means that things get left out for the sake of the shape of the story and the narrative. In terms of reading other queer women, I mean, Uruguayan queer women of the time, there is Cristina Peri Rossi, who is an incredible queer woman writer of the same generation as these characters. She left, she went into exile during the dictatorship so she was in Spain for later years so she had a bit of a different trajectory but she's definitely of that generation and has been very meaningful to me and also Raquel Lubartowski Nogara who was very gracious about talking to me And, and some of the things she told me became seeds for this book and I'm also admirer of her work I've even translated some of her poems so the exchange continues I suppose.
0: Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And, you know, when I was reading this book, I forget when it is that it's mentioned, but uh, you're reading along in this story and you're engrossed and all of a sudden they mention uh, Stonewall. And I I think when we think about LGBTQ plus history, we think about America and we're very American centric, especially here. Uh, But in reality, there are queer histories all over the world that we don't really think about or know about. Was that something that you wanted to push back against when you were writing this story? Yes
2: that is absolutely something I wanted to if not push at push push back against at least kind of pry open a little, expand and explore. Because if you look at Uruguay, for example, you know, the dictatorship began in the early 70s. People were bell-bottomed and dreaming of revolution and in, in parallel ways to Europe and the United States. But then it was almost as if a curtain fell. You know, there was no internet. There was an incredibly intense amount of control over what was in newspapers and television and what came in from outside the country. So people inside Uruguay were almost in like sort of a mental prison in terms of not hearing about movements going on in other countries at all. So late 70s, early 80s, you know, here in the United States, people already knew about Stonewall. You know, there was the Black Power movement and feminist consciousness raising and gay rights was, you know, was an explosively powerful movement in that time. And why not only didn't have that, but didn't even have access to knowing that it had happened. And that's an important story, too, because Uruguay went from being such a closed country in those ways to becoming the second country in Latin America to legalize gay marriage in 2013 and to do it before the United States. Right. So I'm also wanting to push back against this idea that we Latin Americans are more backwards, right? And that the only way that we'll get something like a gay rights movement is by importing it from somewhere else. That's also a flattening of the story. That said, I do think that gay rights has always thrived on international exchange. So hearing about Stonewall in other countries has been really meaningful to uh, movements and queer people on the ground. And I know that the legalization of of gay marriage in, uh, in Uruguay was in part very much fueled by watching what was happening in the U.S. and other countries. So, and and drawing inspiration from the activists in other places. So that international cross-fertilization I wanted to also portray.
1: So we haven't talked yet about the five women who are at the heart of the story. It's just incredible to me, like, how different they are and how they're five fully formed, completely wholly unique individuals. And Kendra and I were talking before we started recording about how rare it is to see that in a book where it's like, you know, these beautiful, strong women are like the center of the story and they're not like somebody's sidekick or something like that. So what was it like to have the opportunity to write a book like this that does center around five amazingly complex and deep queer women?
2: I'm so happy to hear this question and, of course, delighted to hear that they felt so real to you and so distinct and full-blooded um, to you as a reader. That means a great deal to me. Thank you. And I, I would say, you know, of course, we, if we see a queer woman in, in literature and in film and TV, we do often see her as a sidekick, right? Um, and even if she's centered and and, you know thank goodness we have more and more um, queer female protagonists, but I would say queer literature, gay and lesbian and by often we have the coming out story and it's sort of framed as one person's individual journey. And I mean, there are so many books, of course, that I love and admire and treasure from Baldwin's Giovanni's Room to, you know, the work of, of Sarah Waters and Jeanette Winterson and Jewel Gomez and the list goes on and on and on. Amazing people who've done amazing work bringing these things forward. And you know, we don't see as much of this sort of five people at the middle showing all of their prismatic complexity and all of them also being queer because we are so we have so much diversity within our communities and, and wanting to be able to portray that, that was really important to me. And also because just listening to these women's stories, that's where they drew their strength. That is exactly how they survived, is they couldn't come out at work, they couldn't come out to their families or if they did, it was usually a very brutal experience, but they could come out to each other and so they held each other and made a chosen family that held them and carried them through. And and chosen family has been incredibly important for me as a queer woman. So I was disowned by my parents in the process of not so much coming out, but post coming out, marrying my wife. You know, for me, I just am very conscious of the way in which chosen family and the way that we weave these bonds and connections that become as meaningful as blood connections is one of the beautiful, dazzling and powerful things about queerness and about queer culture. So that's part of what I wanted to reflect in putting five protagonists at the center and having a fluid point of view. So the point of view really moves a lot between characters and breaks some of the rules of the more traditional ideas of Fiction Workshop, right? Where you're supposed to only stay, you know, in one person's head per chapter. That's not necessary and it wasn't. didn't feel true to the heart of this book. I really wanted to be able to kind of show the interconnections between them and bring each of their unique humanity
0: and we'll be back with more of our interview with Carolina de Robertis after a word from our sponsor. The sponsor of this episode of Reading Women is Novellic. Novelic is an app for creating, finding, and joining managing book clubs. You can meet new friends who share your same reading taste. And through your book club, you can find your next perfect read, which is so hard sometimes, right?
1: Oh, definitely. And the cool thing about Novellic is that they have so many different kinds of book clubs. So if there's a certain topic that you're wanting to read more in, for example, feminism or LGBTQ or YA or romance or sci-fi, or if you're trying to read something completely different, Novellic has a like perfect reading groups to help you, as Kendra said, find your next read. And sometimes
0: I just want a book club, but maybe my local bookshops or online, I just can't find the type of genre that I want to read more in. So each year I like to set myself like new reading goals for different types of genres or topics. And so Novellic is a great way where you can go and find that topic and find a book club uh, that really fits what you're looking for. So the book club members of Novellix book clubs can vote on what to read. They can have discussions with other book club members, organize meetups, and add books to their book club TBR.
1: Which is so cool. And what's even... More cool is that, to date, Novelic users have recommended over 10,000 books in their book clubs, wow. right? And we even have our own book club over there, the Reading Women Book Club, which we will link in our show notes. So in addition to their
0: book clubs, they also make their own recommendations as in the app as well as in their monthly newsletter. So you'll definitely want to go check out Novelic and see the great community that they have started uh, with their app. So you can go find Novellic at novellic.com or check out the iTunes app store and just search Novellic and you can find their book club app. And thanks so much to Novellic for sponsoring this episode of Reading one. I, I appreciate you talking about chosen family and the dynamics of that. And when Autumn and I were talking about the book, it was just, I, I was thinking about the representation and how I hadn't seen such nuanced dynamics between queer women before on the page. You get to see them and their opinions change and they're fully complex. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some maybe some of the things you learned on the ground when you were researching this book or maybe in your own experience, the importance of chosen family and the things that you've learned and how that has really been a staple of queer
2: culture for such a a long time. Yes, it has absolutely been a staple of queer culture, and it has been sort of how we have made our place in the world. It's almost like we've woven a quilt out of these cast off pieces of fabric that other people didn't want. We're sort of the, 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 the unwanted who could come together and make a beautiful patchwork. You know, and I use that word unwanted in a very conscious way, because of course we are beloved, we are wanted, we are good, but it depends on the framing. Right, depends on the framing culture in which you sit, and you know, familial homophobia is a really important topic. I, I I tried to portray it in different ways in the characters' lives, and not all of the characters are met with hostile homophobia in their families. But I wanted to make sure that I included that because I think there can often be a narrative of oh, well, parents will come around, or at some point they'll understand, and and people can be well intentioned in saying that to queer people. Maybe because it's what they want to believe or they've seen it before, but it's really not that simple. Homophobia is in some ways unique among oppressions in that most gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender plus people are not raised by people who share that culture with them. So most, not all, but most children of color are raised by people of color. And there can be an enormous amount of hostility and bigotry, of course, and racism that that child is going to have to grow into and learn to deal with in society. And of course, internalized racism exists, but most of the time they have at least some mirror or some pathway for how to feel beloved within their home culture as they then navigate the greater culture and the ways that it won't see them. Whereas queer children are often you know, born to straight parents. It's very common. Um, And so, um, and sometimes those people can be embracing, but sometimes those parents are not actually equipped or those relatives, the culture into which the queer person is born is not equipped to actually recognize that child and then that person's full humanity. And so I think that's, that's one of the reasons that chosen family has become such an essential part of queer culture. It's evidenced even in the lives of these women, the cantoras that I met in Uruguay and who became who became the inspiration for this novel. Um, in fact, I reached out to one of them on Facebook, of course, um, as I was renaming the book Cantoras to say, you know, I just want to make sure I get the research right. How widespread was this term? You know, did everybody use it? Did your circle of friends make it up? I'm not quite clear. And she said, I think my friend, Isabel made it up. She's an older, she's older than all of us and she'd been around longer, but she might have gotten it from a prior generation. But I can't ask her because she just had a stroke and she was in her eighties now, this Isabel, who probably coined the word cantoras. And she said that because she's, you know, Isabel is queer. They were all, all the friends were taking turns, coming to the hospital and taking care of her and showing up for her because they are her family, you know? And I never got a chance to get my question asked to um, Isabel because she passed away just Mm -hmm. before the book came out.
1: Well, I think that, I mean, that's such a beautiful story about chosen families. And I think that you really see that in this wanting to give any spoilers here. But, you know, there's lots of things that happen to each of the women in the book that's hard for them or decisions that they have to make, or even, you know, at the very beginning of the bu- the book, they decide to come together and buy this house. And, you know, at the end, we learn, like, the sacrifices certain of the characters made to for them to have that place for them. And I don't know, it's just so hopeful for me, you know, about society on the whole about having these chosen families. But even like with these women, like all the things they go through in the different ways that they support each other. It's just really beautiful.
2: I'm so grateful to hear that. And I hope that there's room in, in literary culture in books and novels and fiction to write about tenderness mm-hmm. and to write about joy, and to let that be part of the stories that we weave out of our understanding of the world and out of culture, and without taking away from all of the harsh realities that people face, and not necessarily in a Pollyanna way. I mean, sometimes we might want to read a Sunshine and Rainbows Pollyanna book, and that's fabulous, (laughs) right? Um, But that we can also have depth and write about joy, that that doesn't have to be an either or. I mean, even in these circumstances and in, in terms of, you know, living through a dictatorship in very repressive times, you know, these women were able to find joy in, in simple things and making a meal together and being honest with each other and, and saying, hey, let's buy a shack together if we can and, and just make it a place where we can actually be honest with ourselves and each other and make joy. And especially writing about queer stories. I think writing about joy alongside all of the other realities and challenges um, is something that's really important to me and was definitely grat- gratifying along the way to you know, include in their narratives and, and in the journeys that they take. And they do all take such very different journeys and di- disagree with each other you know, roundly in lots of different ways. Uh, Because there simply is not one way to be queer, there are as many ways to be queer as there are queer people, just like there are as many ways to be Latino as there are Latino people.
0: That's one of the things that I absolutely adored about your novel. I remember reading about one of the women, and I don't want to give any spoilers, but one of the women um, was like, oh, I, I do like men sometimes. And I also, I guess, now like women, and that's fine. And maybe that time that I enjoyed men is over. Maybe it's not. Who knows? It doesn't matter. And I really appreciated the nuance that each of the characters has with their own queer identity. And it just varies. And that variation and degree of diversity was just a joy to read and i think so often when we read especially like early queer fiction here in america it's all very sad and things don't end well because of course they can't because you know queer women they can't have happy endings right and mm-hmm. which is really mm-hmm.
2: problematic mm-hmm. that's the narrative yeah
0: I'm so glad that this book, while it does talk about the challenges and the difficult things these women faced, it still has that feeling of joy and vibrancy in their own identities that I feel like we've just needed in queer literature for so long. And they kind of like take joy in their identity as opposed to feeling like it's just a weight that they're carrying.
2: Right. Right. There's people who are actually delighted to be queer. I mean, I think Flacca as a character loves being queer, you know, she loves being gay. She loves having sex with women. She loves having new lovers, you know, and, and seduction. She's, you know, she kind of has a masculine of center person um, without necessarily putting a particular label on that, but that's absolutely her experience of the world. And she, you know, really enjoys, you know, the having many different lovers and, and a kind of unabashed, unapologetic promiscuity. She doesn't like having more oppression heaped on her because she's gay but she loves being gay she can be promiscuous but that doesn't mean that Romina wants to be promiscuous right that's not her path she's somebody who wants to connect with someone emotionally and have a long-term relationship if she's going to have sexual expression within that relationship and and then the character as you mentioned who is bisexual I and mean, I think if in today's terms she would call herself bisexual and she's also part of this part of this tribe and, and part of this group of women and bisexuality has always been with us you know right within our community as well of course
1: and thinking about these women and how different they are to kind of bring this conversation full circle like contorus is really like such a beautiful title for this and i love jacqueline woodson's blurb on your book but she's talking about she calls it a stunning lullaby to revolution and each woman in this novel sings it with a deep ferocity, and she calls it a song of a story. And I'm like, that's so true. Like, I'm thinking about, like, now that I finished it, you know, the beginning of the book, thinking about, it like, music, there's, like, definitely certain themes that, like, built and built and built and built till the resolution at the end. This is just more of an ad to say, everyone, please go read this book because it is beautiful. And, like, I, I'm i just in awe of your skill in crafting a story like that because it is just... It it was a beautiful experience to read it. And now I'm just repeating myself over and over and over again.
2: (laughs) Thank you. I'm so honored. And, you know, my hope is that it resonates for people, you know, on whatever level it makes sense for them as readers, right, because writing a book, you know, you, for me at least, I, I write the book that I feel wants to be written or needs to be written through me, I mean, I come at the work of writing a novel, always the late, great Toni Morrison's words in my mind, novels are inquiries, right, they start with a burning question, something that we want to know, and, and we might never get the question answered, but we, we explore the question by writing the story, and, and among the questions that fueled this book are, um, you know, how do we create refuge for ourselves and each other? And and how do we live radiantly when the world around us seems bent on our erasure? And that may be a question for a, a difficult time in Uruguayan history and for queer women in that history or for, queer women. But it's also a question that's a human question, right? And how do we live radiantly in difficult times is hopefully something that, I mean, it's something that I think, unfortunately, we all have to be thinking about, but hopefully there's something there that resonates for people in whatever way. It's incredibly beautiful.
0: Yeah. I just keep thinking about the book and how for us on Reading on reading Women, we read a lot of books by women and women's experiences, but so few of them focus on love between women, whether that be friendship love or romantic love. It's usually there's some sort of man involved in the woman's life. And while men are incredibly important to many women, there's also chosen families that are just women. And that's in a wide range of different relationships. And that's, that's fine. And that's why one of the first conversations Autumn and I had about this book was that it was such a breath of. Of fresh air in that it was so woman focused and even for us who read lots of things by women we genuinely adored it
2: oh, thank you so much my eyes are stinging <laughs> thank you that means so much to me i'm so glad
1: well before we let you go we always like to ask the guests we have on the podcast for book recommendations. So what are some books by queer women or queer Latina authors or Latina authors or just books that you've really enjoyed lately that you would like to share with our listeners?
2: Oh, yes. Great. So I've just started reading Dominicana by Angie Cruz, which just came out on the same day as my book did. So it's very recent. And the Prose is just absolutely gorgeous. And it's um, based on her mother's life. She was basically promised to a man in the Dominican Republic at the age of 11 and then married him at 15 to come to the United States. And her family had her do it so that they could one day immigrate to the United States through her. And, you know, what a journey. And it just has so much to say about migration and children and the cost of um, immigrant life and also what happens in women's lives. And it's just so beautifully written. So I'm incredibly excited about that book. And then there's a short story collection that just came out, I think, this week by Nancy Au, that's A-U. And it's called Spider, Love, Song, and Other Stories. And it is just absolutely delightful. It, 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 they're just absolutely fascinating, insightful, resonant, quirky, strange stories about living and, and being your full self within Chinese immigrant community and as women, as young women, old women, queer women, straight women. It's just a really lovely prismatic collection, but I'm so delighted is in the world. Well, I
0: Dominicana just showed up at my doorstep So that makes going, finding that one easier. But I'll definitely pick up both of these books. I'm very excited about both of them. So you said that this was your fourth novel. Uh, so what are you working on now? I mean, I'm assuming after your book tour is over. Yes. Yeah, uh, <laughs> there is there anything right now that you'd like to share with our listeners?
2: Well, I, I'm working on another novel. I, I worked on it as much as I could before the book tour began. So it's underway. And um, I, the novel that I'm working on now is still about Uruguay. It's sort of a, a surreal and playful look at the nature of political leadership, and political corruption, and the possibilities for um, social transformation. That sounds
0: that sounds fabulous. So we will definitely keep our eye out for it. I feel like you're just making my TBR just like that much higher at the moment.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having such a wide TV, uh, TBR. And, and for, well, I mean, really, for reading so thoughtfully and passionately. And Clearly you're such magnificent readers in, in, in terms of the depth that you take with books. And I really do think it makes a difference for um, you know, shaping our future culture, right? The world that mm-hmm. we want. So thank you. Well, thank you for
1: writing such deep and thoughtful books. And uh, thank you so much for coming onto our podcast. We were excited to read your book and even more excited to talk to you. So thanks so much.
2: Oh, thank you. Such a pleasure. Wonderful to meet you both. Thank you so much.
0: We'd like to thank Carolina de Robertis for talking to us about Cantoras, which is out now from Knopf. You can find Carolina on her website, carolinaderobertis.com and on Facebook and Twitter at Carol de Robertis. And of course, all of her information will be linked in our show notes.
1: We'd also like to say a special thank you to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. And they also make the transcripts of this episode possible. So thank you so much to them. You can find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com and on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at Katie Winchester and me at Autumn Privet. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll talk to you soon.